My name is Jasmine. I am the artist in residence here. Um, many of you may not know that I'm also the resident Lewis Carroll fan. Um, there was a slide in there with Lewis Carroll stuff on it, but just believe me, I am the resident Lewis Carroll fan here. Because he's such a nut, right? Um, in, in his book, Through the Looking Glass, um, Alice is speaking to a, um, a queen from a chessboard, like you do. Um, and she, she, the queen has told her something, and Alice says that she can't believe it. And she says, one can't believe impossible things. And the queen says to her, well, I dare say you haven't had much practice. When I was your age, I did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Well, God has a habit of promising impossible things. Um, and when I was looking at this week's passage, I was so tickled to find that it is actually six impossible things in this passage that God promises. So let's take a look at Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness is over the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. I apologize. I meant to bring my Bible up here so I could read it from here. I'm reading it from there. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold, to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open, they will never be shut, day or night, so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together, to adorn my sanctuary. And I will glorify the place for my feet. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you, all who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated, with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. 
Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold, and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze, and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor, and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. There's more to that passage. Ah, thank you. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. The context of this passage is debated a little bit. Um, but for any one of the contexts that it could be, none of these things sound likely. Uh, one possibility is that it was written by Isaiah himself. This is sort of the traditional understanding of this. Um, Isaiah was living at a time when Judah was being repeatedly attacked by large foreign powers as well as by their neighbors. Um, there was corruption among the people. There was idol worship. One king's reign that he lived through literally burned his own children alive to foreign gods. Um, and then when there was a good king, Isaiah had to tell him, basically, someday this whole country and your descendants are going to be exiled to Babylon. So that wasn't really a fun time to be preaching. Um, other people say, now this, this sounds like it was written later by maybe one of Isaiah's students. Um, it sounds like it was written during the Babylonian exile. Um, well, one of Israel's poets describes the exile this way. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling of your name. We are given no miraculous signs, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. This was not a context in which any of these promises of God sounded likely. Um, even if it was written later when they came back from exile, the Bible describes that experience as they were trying to rebuild with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other because so many people were trying to stop them. These promises that God gives in these passages are not the kind of things a normal person says unless they're true. Because people who are suffering know that false hope is false and they don't really appreciate it when you're naive. Because you may, you may say to somebody who's worried about a test, right, like, I'm sure you'll do great. But you don't say to somebody who is worried about a missing child, I'm sure she's fine. She, she probably just went to get you cookies. It's not what you say when somebody is suffering. Um, I had a, a friend of color who was 
really worried about how somebody had responded to her. And I said something like, I'm, I'm sure they don't think poorly of you. And she said to me, you're so naive. You think everyone's like you. And you know what? She was right. And it was a really good reality check for me. I should not have been trying to comfort her with something that wasn't true. I forgot that it wasn't true, but it wasn't. So these things that Isaiah says here are not promises that you make unless they're true. Christianity is a high-stakes religion. Because here's the thing, other religions and philosophies kind of make sense and work whether they're true or not. Um, now, I apologize, this is going to be a huge oversimplification, but in Islam, right, it basically says, you know, be good and make sure that you have more good deeds than bad deeds. Well, that's, that's kind of good advice whether the rest of Islam is true or not, right? Um, Buddhism basically says, don't sweat the small stuff, which is great advice. Actually, they kind of say, don't sweat any stuff, which may be debatable advice, but... Um, Humanism says, live and let live, right? Seems like good advice, whether the rest of it is true. Well, Christianity doesn't focus on advice or a moral teaching. It focuses on statements about reality. It actually focuses on a person and a relationship with that person. So all of the promises in the Bible are founded on a person. So if that person doesn't come through, the whole thing falls apart. Right before this chapter that we read um, in Isaiah 59, 20, it says the Redeemer will come to Zion. Now Zion is just a poetic name for Jerusalem, um, kind of like when instead of the US we say Uncle Sam. Um, it's just another, another name. Uh, <clears throat> so this promised Redeemer is connected to these promises that follow. So what are the six impossible things promised in this coming person? Well, first of all, God promises glory, but it's a very specific kind of glory. Um, in the chapter before, it said, we look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Now he's saying, arise, shine, for your light has come. Do you notice the implication there? Our culture is kind of into shining, you know, show the world what you've got in your heart. Well, what if what you have in your heart is darkness? This passage gives a different impression of what it means to shine because it says, shine for your light has come. Have you ever seen the way that a gemstone catches the light? It shines, but only when the light is on it or shining through it. Um, and Lamentations actually describes us as sacred gems. It's lamenting for people who are morally corrupt and suffering for it, but it calls them sacred gems. It says, oh, how the sacred gems have been scattered at the head of every street. It's describing people who have fallen morally and are in dire straits, but it still calls them sacred gems because they are something precious that didn't lose its value by falling in the dirt. Um, another, another way to think of this, this light coming is around this time of year, hopefully, there's a lot of snow. The indigenous peoples of Alaska invented a form of sunglasses years before we invented the ones that we've got here with the glass in them. Um, they were kind of a, a board with little slits in it because 
the way that the sun shines off of snow can be so bright that it can actually cause a very painful form of eye damage called snow blindness. Um, but again, the snow doesn't shine unless there is light shining on it. Once the light does shine on it, it's blinding. Um, in, in a very good and wholesome movie, Young Frankenstein, um, this, this lady, Frau Blücher, turns around and says, stay close to the candles. The staircase can be treacherous. But the joke is, none of the candles are lit. And they don't do you any good when they're not lit. Interestingly, right before this chapter, God promises the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit first came on Jesus' disciples, it came looking like tongues of fire. Lit candles. The promise is that we would shine with glory. And the promise is so sure that he puts it in the past tense. Your light has come. Because the Lord rises over you and his glory appears over you. The promise implies that our light does not depend on our intermittent and limited human goodness. This is not light that we have to produce or keep lit or pretend that it's there when it's not. This is light coming from the one who John says is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This promise implies that we get to share in God's holiness because biblically, glory is connected to holiness. Um, holiness is one of those religious -y words. It means this sort of incorruptible goodness, this unadulterated goodness. How many people do we have here that are gluten-free? Yeah, yeah. Holiness is like when you pick up that package and it's certified gluten-free and you're like, yes, this won't kill me. That's what holiness is, nothing bad in there. And so because of this promise, because of this promise that when we are touched by the fire of God, we get to share in that light, we see people like Amy Carmichael, who cared for orphans in India and saved many from becoming child brides. We see people like Susan LaFleche, who single-handedly brought medical care to her Omaha people, along with being a preacher and a mom and an advocate for the rights of indigenous tribes. We see people like Phyllis Wheatley, who is now mostly remembered for poetry, but she was also an abolitionist and an apologist, somebody who defends the uh, rationality of the Christian faith. We see people like Gladys Aylward, who cared for orphans in China and spread the gospel and helped abolish the custom of foot binding, which injured so many women. We see people like Sojourner Truth, who lived right here in Florence, who was a preacher and who went from hating the people who had enslaved her to having love in her heart for every person. If these people are not an example of reflected glory, I don't know what is. So God's first unreasonable promise to us is that we will have reflected glory. The second impossible thing God promises is the restoration of family. Children are precious to us in our culture. We have no concept of how precious they were to the people Isaiah was talking to because to them it was also your security and your meaning and your legacy and your future. Without social security, you need to have kids who will then take care of you in your old age. And your progeny was how you made your mark on the world. If you didn't have kids, you didn't exist. And you certainly did not have a future. 
When Jesus came, he introduced the idea of God as Father to us. Not just as the Father of the nation in this conceptual way, but the Father of you. Someone you can talk to. The Father of the person next to you. Jesus established spiritual family. I got to experience the family of God many times this morning. I was not planning on putting this in as part of my sermon, but it's just so great. Um, my, my sister drove me here because my car broke down. <laughs> I got help from Brennan with the slides. I got help from Pastor Bill with actually printing out my sermon because machines hate me. And look how nice this looks. I'm usually a disaster with loose pieces of paper everywhere. And he like put it in this thingy for me. I got a hug from a sister who I was late in responding to, but was just so gracious and gave me this nice hug anyway and a just joyful, kind greeting. The family of God is here. I've got my real family over here making faces at me the whole time I preach. It's great. And we see this family of God every time strangers or enemies find that they have a bond in Jesus. Every time prodigals return home to the love of God. That's why we see Chuck Colson, who was jailed for his part in the Watergate scandal and then ended up founding a ministry to prisoners and sharing God's love with millions of people. We see it in biological families as well, including Jesus' own family. His brothers were not big fans of him, to the point where he had to ask a friend to take care of his mom when he died instead of her own children taking care of her. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his brother James. James then became one of the pillars of the Christian church. This restoration of family happens in biological families. It happens in spiritual families. Psalm 68.6 says he sets the lonely in families. That is an important promise. The third thing that he promises in this chapter is restoration of our identity in God. Verses four through six talk about how people will come and they will be proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Verse 14 says, the sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Verse nine says, surely the islands look to me they will bring your sons from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. So the restoration of Israel and the honor of Israel are directly connected to their identity in God. Notice also how this identity in God is connected with this idea of mutual honor. And we were talking about reflected glory before. This is, this is that reflected glory in action. God endows them with splendor, and that splendor reflects back to his glory. There's this sort of reciprocal relationship where each delights in honoring the other. Do you know where else we see that? We see that in the Trinity. Um, the Trinity is this weird, weird Christian doctrine of God being three persons in one being. Um, I know it sounds really weird, but if you think about it, God is self-defined as love. God's word says God is love. That means there must be love within God even when there was nothing but God. So there must be more than one person 
within this being of God or else it would be selfishness, not love. So we see this reciprocal glory within the Trinity um, and we see it played out in John 17 where Jesus prays. He says, glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. They delight in bringing each other glory. So this has been going on within God for eternity. And when God restores our identity in him, he restores that cycle of mutual honor with us, which means that God is allowing us to participate in his very nature. So we see Paul, whose identity was in himself and in his religious accomplishments and in being better than other people. God got hold of him and his identity shifted so much that he came to the point where he said he considered his former life and everything else in the world garbage in comparison to just knowing Jesus. We see things like when missionaries came to Korea. Now, I don't know a ton about this story, but when you're a playwright, people always come up to you and say, you know what you should write a play about? Apparently, when missionaries first came to Korea, what they found was that women did not have names. They were just known as the daughter of. So when the women of Korea started turning to Jesus and they were baptized and took Christian names, those were the first names they'd ever had. That was the first time these women had had their own identity and their own name was when they found Jesus. The fourth promise that we see here, the fourth impossible thing, is acceptance of those who were outside, the acceptance of foreigners. Now, this was a, a promise that was not just hard to believe, but maybe a little hard to want, because it stokes human pride to see that there are people who aren't like us, and they're out there. But again, when these promises are focused on God, that makes all the difference. That's the only way to truly want something like this. It's only if your identity is in God that you can be secure enough to want others to be able to join in that identity and still be themselves. Notice also in this passage that these people who are coming to God are accepted within the parameters of that community. This was not just bringing in idol worship and all of the sinful trappings that came along with their former lives. This was people joining in the worship of the one true God. So all of these promises are centered around God, and he says that when these people come to him, their offerings will be accepted on his altar. That is huge. But it's not the biggest surprise within this promise. Because there's a lot in this chapter about people coming and kneeling and people coming and bowing. And that, you know, that may have stoked people's pride as well when they first heard this chapter. But if you look in the Bible at the people who knelt before Jesus, it was good news for them. In Matthew 15, this woman um, from Phoenicia so very much not Jewish, came and knelt before Jesus and said, help me, my daughter is really suffering. And Jesus tested her a little. Jesus tested, you know, do you really want to be part of God, what God's doing? Do you really want a God who's different from what you've had? And she said, yes. And he healed her daughter. In John 4, there was a royal official we don't know necessarily if he was Jewish or not, but the chances are, if he was 
a royal official for Herod, he was not a very good Jew. And he begged Jesus to come. And Jesus did. When people kneel before God, they find that he is not an oppressor, but a giver of mercy. Hebrews 14, sorry, Hebrews 4, 16 tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace. The New Testament describes our relationship with God in terms of confidence over 10 times. And that's from three different authors. This is not just one guy's idea. And so we see stories like that of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the people who first brought the other half of Israel into exile. Did you know that they became one of the very first Christian nations? Um, My Assyrian friend told me that the story is that the king of Assyria had leprosy and he sent messengers to Jesus to ask him to come and heal him because he had heard about what Jesus was doing. But it was very close to the time where Jesus was about to be crucified. And so Jesus said, I cannot come, but I'm going to send somebody to you. And after he rose, he sent Thaddeus with what's now known as the Shroud of Turin, and it healed their king, and he, the, the entire nation turned to Christ. The Assyrians would be the last people you would have expected to have, be the ones that this promise was talking about, but they were. The fifth thing that we see promised is these unequal exchanges to our benefit. He says, you know, in place of brass, I'll give you gold. We tend to live with good enough. We tend to temper our expectations because that's what the world teaches us to do. That's what our experience teaches us to do. God brings splendor. C.S. Lewis says that um, when we turn to Christ, we often expect that he's just going to, like, fix up a couple of things. You know, he's just going to improve us and make us a little better. And then he just starts like tearing things down and doing all this stuff. And we're, we're kind of freaked out by what's going on. And he says, you know, he, we thought we were going to get this like cozy little cabin and God builds this castle. And so we see in these unequal exchanges, my life exchanged for Jesus's life, my abilities replaced by the Holy Spirit's abilities. We see my plans replaced by the plans of someone who knows all and loves fully and orchestrates galaxies. That's a trade I want to make. The last thing that he promises here is a righteousness that spreads. He says, then all your people will be righteous. They are the shoot I have planted the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. When Jesus talks about his word spreading years and years and centuries after this, he talks about it in terms of those who receive the word of God are like a seed that produces 30 or 60 or 100 times what was sown into the ground. And so we see people like Martin Luther King, whose influence spread to hundreds and thousands We see people like Henrietta Mears, who was a pretty ordinary Sunday school teacher, but who taught and inspired the work of people like Billy Graham and Bill and Vanette Bright. Um, Not everything that God chooses for you to do is going to be this big, showy thing, but you might be a Henrietta Mears whose legacy extends to so many more people than you would have expected.
So what do we do with these six impossible things? Because normal people don't say things like this unless they're true. The heights of ridiculous hope that are expressed in the Bible are just over the top. And if they're not true, it is the height of cruelty to say them. If they are true, it's kind of the height of cruelty not to say them. And it's the pinnacle of missed opportunity to not believe them. What do you find hard to believe? What do you look at and say, I just, I just find that hard to believe. That doesn't sound like something that's true. Usually, it's going to be connected with either your deepest pain or your deepest longing in life. What in this passage do you find hard to believe? Do you find it hard to believe that in the eyes of God, whether you're a gem that is set in a ring or one that is ignored in the dust, that you are a gem that never loses its value or its ability to reflect his light? Do you find it hard to believe that God cares about your family and that the people you love who are just stuck can become unstuck because nothing is bigger than God? Do you find it hard to believe that your identity is something that you can be proud of? Not a dissatisfying pride that begins and ends with you, but the kind that lasts, the kind that gives and receives glory and honor within relationship? Do you find it hard to believe that even though most of your life you've been an outsider, in God you are accepted? You know the one that I find hard to believe? This promise that we will be righteous. It is so hard given everything that we see in our culture of the many ways that our community, um, and I'm talking, about, I'm talking about our national and global community of Christians, not you specifically. <laughs> I find it hard to believe, looking at all the ways that we have failed, this crazy promise of righteousness. Do you find it hard to believe that God likes you? That he likes you and not just tolerates you? What do we do with these impossible things? I would suggest three things. First, consider that the things that seem outlandish, oops, that's not the right slide. The things that seem outlandish are often the things that are true. Why? Because otherwise we could make them up and we wouldn't need someone to tell us, right? This is why we have scientists. We need science because reality is really weird. If reality made sense or was intuitive, we wouldn't need people to study it and tell us about it. But we have physicists and biologists and cosmologists who tell us things like an electron moves from one orbital to another without passing through any space in between. So basically, electrons teleport, like all the time. And that's what everything around you and in you is made up of, these like little teleporting things. Or that photons are sometimes a particle or sometimes a wave, depending on how you observe them. Or that you can never actually be 100% sure where something is. Yeah, thank you for that one, Peter. That the closer you get to knowing something's position, the less you know about the rest of it. This is ridiculous stuff, but it's true. You know, the man who first discovered dark matter didn't publish his findings because he thought they must be wrong. It was so weird. Consider that the weird things, the things that seem just crazy, 
are often the things that are true. Second, go and discover what is true, not what feels true in the moment. Go discover what is true and then practice it. Back to C.S. Lewis again for a moment. He said that faith is the art of holding on to what your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. You're not always gonna feel like something's true, but that doesn't change whether what you have investigated and looked into is true or not. So investigate what is true, and then practice. The little chessboard queen was right. You need to believe impossible things before breakfast. Maybe not six. How about one? How about your hardest one? That one thing that came to mind when I asked you, what do you find hard to believe? A friend of mine said that her life really changed when she realized that she could decide whether or not to believe. Now, I want to be careful with how I say this because Christians often say things like, well, you know, head knowledge is different from heart knowledge, and it, they kind of end up blaming people for experiencing doubt and pain. But it is true that you can choose. You can choose whether to take the risk of believing. You can choose whether to let belief get to that point of vulnerability because it's going to touch your deepest pain and your deepest need. You can choose what you affirm. You can choose what you repeat to yourself. You can choose what impossible thing you're going to believe before breakfast. Third, cry out to the one who can help your unbelief. That phrase that many of the, many of the long-standing Christians in here have heard many times, God help my unbelief, we don't always remember where that came from. That was said by a man who needed Jesus to come through for him. And Jesus' followers had not come through for him. He had just had them actually royally fail him. His son was being tortured by a demon. Jesus' followers were not able to help, and so he came directly to Jesus. This was the point of his deepest pain, and this was the point of the highest stakes for false hope. If Jesus didn't come through, everything was lost. He knew the truth. He knew what Jesus had done for other people. He knew that Jesus could do it. But there were a thousand and one reasons to say, I find this hard to believe for my life, for my need. So he did the most logical thing that he could. He acknowledged that the one who could solve his problem could also provide the faith to believe it. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, you are light. And you promised us light because you promised us yourself and then you proved it in coming. Lord, during this festival of lights, centuries ago, you told us, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow out of him. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.